Welcome to Future Pod. I'm Peter Hayward. This is going to be an interesting conversation, one that I've been very enthusiastic about organising for at least a couple of years. And I need to tell a brief story to explain what this conversation is about. Over 20 years ago, I met Sahail in Atula for the first time. He came down to do a couple of days teaching in Richard Slaughter's Master of Foresight course at Swinburne University. And on day one, Sahail went through his usual bag of tricks, CLA, macro history. One of the macro histories he talked about was Sarkar's social cycle. And I was taken by everything Sahail said, but particularly the social cycle. That night and over coffee in the morning, I sketched out what I thought was a little organisational game, a little drama that could be played with people in organisation that I thought would be useful. I showed it to Sahail. Sahail, I think, said, cool. That, of course, is what some of us listening will know as the Sarkar game. It's got a moderate experience amongst a range of practitioners. But the Sarkar game is named after someone, and that someone was P.R. Sarkar. So I've invited back two previous guests, Sahail Inatula and Dada Shambhu Shivananda, who both knew P.R. Sarkar very well. Welcome to FuturePod. Great to be here, Peter. Thank you. So my question, my first question to you is, who was P.R. Sarkar and where did you meet him? I came in his contact in the year 1965 through one of my uncles who used to live in Bombay. And when Shri P.R. Sarkar, whom we used to affectionately call Baba, he was known by many names, Shri Shri Anandamurti, Shri Prabhat Ranjan Sarkar, but we used to call him Baba, which means the dearest one or affectionate one, a father-like figure. And through him, I came in contact with his movement. And after a few months, he visited a place in India, in Chandigarh, where I used to study. And that's where I first saw him. He was born in 1921 or 22 in Jamalpur, and a very small town, railway junction, and there was not even a library. And yet he was like a spiritual stalwart who uh, had extraordinary gifts. He was omniscient, all-knowing. He spoke many languages of the world. Later on, when he started to compose songs and he gave 5,019 songs in a span of eight years, he showed his proficiency in music, in ragas and raginis and different musical styles. So he was a multifaceted personality. And what attracted me first was his spiritual and yogic practices. I learned meditation at my uncle's house. And then when I met him personally, I was exposed to his extraordinary spiritual powers. But as I came closer and closer to him, I realized that actually there was more to him than just only the spiritual dimension. So that was my beginning meeting with him. So here, perhaps you want to add something. Uh, for me, it was 1975. I was at the University of Hawaii as a student and someone was running courses on meditation. And the course I took, the person was this dazzling instructor full of love and light and warmth. And as I took his courses... And he kept on saying, it's not him who's so dazzling and wonderful. It's his spiritual teacher. And that was, as Dada said, Sri P.R. Sarkar or Sri Sri Nandamurti. So then started to look at his life. And so if you divide this or see it as four persons, four ways to see this, 
One would be Sarkar as the spiritual mystic. And that was what I was first introduced to. Then over time, as I took courses in future studies, I quickly understood, looking at his work in the 1950s, aha, this person is actually a futurist as well, giving us even then early indicators of what this century could look like. And the third part was very much, if you look at Foucault, there's people within paradigms, then there's people who create paradigms. I could see he was really on about epistemic revolution. So third was really Sarkar as the creator of episteme, someone who's a world thinker. And the last part really is how we met was through the social cycle, Sarkar as a macro historian, giving a new way to understand history, politics, and social justice. So those are the four personas of this person that I found most most fascinating. So the ability to integrate the spiritual with macro history, with futures, with visionary leadership, I would say it's quite novel in human history. And he had the knack of taking concepts which were already in practice, but giving a totally different connotations to them. For example, in this social cycle, he took the terms of the Indian caste system like Shudra, Khatriya, Vipra, Vaishya. Usually people would see them people who are just laborers as Shudras and uh, the warriors as Khatriyas, but they see them as caste and Vipras as the intellectuals and the Vaishyas as the businessmen. But he talked about collective psychologies which prevail in the society at a particular point in time. And for example, these days, most of the countries of the world are going through the Vaishyan age where the money is ruling Anybody who has money controls the economic power, controls the political power, controls the institutions and dictates what happens. Even if you are not a vaccine specialist, but if you have money, you become the spokesperson for that everybody should mm. get a vaccine. This is yeah. So I think the collective psychology changes. And he gave a whole theory of social cycle that one after the other, from the Shudra era, we get the Khatriya era. I think he influenced many different fields of knowledge. As Sohail mentioned, he did not only talk about languages. He knew all the languages and the grammar of different languages. He not only talked about psychology, he gave a new concept of mind and microvita, the science of that there is mind present even in inanimate things, which is dormant. And so he made some seminal contributions in the field of spirituality, in the field of politics. He gave a concept of social revolution and the concept of leadership called sadvipras, means the spiritual revolutionaries who would work to achieve progressive changes for human evolution in a very well thought out, pre-planned basis, whether in physical, mental or spiritual spheres, but adhering to some moral and ethical framework or with those principles. So he wanted to create value-oriented individuals who can stop the exploitation in the society. And that's why he faced a lot of opposition in his life and he had to himself undergo a lot of suffering, even as we all know what he experienced in his life. Now, I was very inspired intellectually because when I was writing my doctoral dissertation, I was looking for a topic which would be meaningful. And so I chose the role of the planning nutrition interventions in developing countries. And I looked at what the multinational corporations were doing to alleviate hunger, but actually they were just only trying to fulfill their own vested mm. interests. So I, I think 
his thoughts provided as a, as a very moral compass or a lens to filter and to look at what is really happening behind the scenes in the society. And I think in that respect, perhaps Sohail's work also was greatly influenced by his, his contributions. Yeah, to frame this, if you say the Arkara from the spiritual view, the analogy I use is of the diamond. So the top is spiritual practice. And then what, another side is, of course, social service. You're doing something for others. But underneath it, as Dada suggested, you can do as much service as you want. But if there's no social justice, if actually power continues to accumulate for those who already have power, they get more than the service in a way doesn't have the impact it could have. And the last part is new humanism, meaning who are we as identity? Are we just egos or family or nation state or our society? Or can we in fact be humanity plus nature, a new planetary identity? So that's part one to it. Part two for our listeners out there is Sarkar as a futurist. So his early work as Dada has talked about in the 50s was you can just read through some of the emerging issues he talked about. He talks about mind in technology, what today we call artificial intelligence. But for 1950s, that was pretty interesting, mind in technology. <laughs> then he talked about the settled agricultural revolution being inevitable. Today, we're already seeing it. It took 70 years from his speaking about it to actually now we're starting to look in vitro meat, etc. Then he talked about artificial wombs and eventually most of how we create will be done in other forms. And then he talked about leaving the planet, putting the mind in one construction, the body stays and the mind goes. So the stuff we're on the cutting edge in 2021, he was already talking about in the late 1950s. So then as emerging issues as a futurist, I just have to go back to his early work. If people ask, what are the emerging issues you're following? Why well, just read Sarkar? <laughs> his work in the 1950s is pretty good. Now, not even going to his work in the 1980s, where he talked about microvita, which is basically viruses that can enhance technology. And if you want to change the world, you figure out what these memes are, what we now call meme revolution. He was talking about that again, 42 years ago, you find what the memes are, you imbue them with consciousness, and they're more likely because they're a better evolutionary fit to where we wish to go. So that's Sarkar too, which is as futurist. Now, the one in terms of you start out with the Sarkar game was he rethought Hegel and Marx. So if Marx was workers and capitalists and Hegel will know these are ideals. This is more about the Geist, history of mentalities. He said, look, actually, worker, warrior, intellectual, capitalists are ways of seeing the world, their way of thinking. They're not just physical, they're actually psychological. So the power of the Sarkar game, every time we run it, organize it and say, okay, here's our vision of the future, here's what's changing. And suddenly in the Sarkar game, everyone sees the four powers of work. In the organization, who has the money? Who has the ideas? Who has the systemic power to either allow change or actually to destroy change? And who are the workers doing everything? So once that happens, and then once people say, oh my God, this is what's going on. And the moment of realization is, again, as Dada just said, aha, we're missing that spiritual leadership. We're missing the way of thinking or the persons who can serve, who engage in social justice, who have the new ideas, and who can create value. So that's been the power in every organization. When I use it, it goes from an interesting futures exercise to actually know this deep structure tells us what we need to do. 
Now, can you just quickly, I know this is a tough one, but can you quickly, for the listeners who haven't actually seen a Sarko game or played a Sarko game, can you just quickly just spin people through when you play a Sarko game, what is it you actually do? So the first part when I write it, I do a bit on macro history. If you're going to look at time and history, you can do linear. It's Things keep on getting better because of technology. They can be cyclical. Power always comes back. They can be pendulum as Sorkin goes back and forth. Or Sarkar, there's four types of power. So we see that in history going from a small village to a city-state to empire. The warriors take over. For the warriors to expand, they need intellectuals. So you have ideas. Intellectuals are great, but they can't handle money. So the capitalists come in. So almost every country today and world history as a whole, you can see that happening. So in the gaming situation, we take four scripts, which you folks wrote. Group one gets the worker script, Maroon and act as workers. Group two has a warrior script. We invite them in and either they protect the workers, but more often than not, they pick them off or start to bully them. Even though the script says protect, they start to bully and attack them. <laughs> Group three are the intellectuals come and say, wait a second, there's a better way to be. We can be better. We can be spiritual. We create new ideas. We can create a cooperative society. We can be these visionaries and they either get shot or put down or sometimes they <laughs> succeed. And then group four comes yeah. in and says, if you really want to do this well, let's monetize this. And so then you have this movement or all four, and you never know who's going to win or can they work together to create a successful civilization where everyone's protected, everyone works, everyone's ideas are valued, a kind of utopian, a good society. And that usually people say, aha, I have to become different. And so every once in a while, you saw Vipers emerge who bring everyone together. And more often than not, one group just shoot others because they actually are working, as Dada said, from ego, not from humanism, not from their greater self, from their ego self. And which then Sarkar goes back to, if you're trying to create a better social society, you have to do the inner work. This is meditation, mindfulness, service. Without that, it's nonsense. But if you're only doing that, then again, you're just sitting there doing your meditation. You're not involved in deep social justice. So that was always my attraction. Not just someone who understood the unveiling of the future, but knew what was wrong in society and linked the inner work. So the Sarkar gave me an organizations or as a tool to understand what's going on in Russia, Ukraine, or China, or the U.S. It's a very powerful lens to understand today and tomorrow. Tata, I'm interested, you mentioned collective consciousness, because when I've played Sarkar game or I've watched people learning through Sarkar game, there's something in the use of these cast archetypes that people reveal to themselves their own limited way of thinking about themselves and reality. And it seems in the drama or the conflict of ideas that people can actually almost have a kind of a revolution in how they see themselves and their situation. Yeah, because collective psychology is rooted in the individual psychologies. And in each human being, there is that acquisitive tendency and there is also the instinct of survival. There is the instinct of growth. And and when they become too much acquisitive, then also the power gets away from them. So it's like a cyclical kind of notion that the one era comes into being because that's what people think they are going to help everybody else. So that is the growth phase. But then when they come into power, for some time they are making, uh, doing a lot of good to the society, people are quite happy. But after some time when they get entrenched in that power and they start to misuse power, then people's freedoms go away and then they start exploiting. And that's the time when 
somebody else has to rise to power. So I think what Baba was trying to do was that he was trying to show that unless you have more or value oriented individuals in the society, this exploitation will never end. Whether it is exploitation by the military or by the intellectuals or by the capitalist or merchant class, this will continue. Maybe the power will shift from one to another, like the Britishers left India, but the exploitation did not end. What hmm. the Britishers were doing, some of the Indian people, they started doing it to their fellow beings. So you need some value orientation in society. And that's why he used his spiritual and moral practices to bring that. So he started the education system so that everybody from the childhood, they can be nurtured to become a moralist person or an ethical person or a good person or intelligent person and who has social consciousness, who would like to serve society and not only, okay, you get education only so that you can become rich. You become a doctor to become rich. Millions of dollars to complete your education, but then when you come out of it, you want to do the same thing. You want to recover all the money that you have spent. So he wanted to create a different to create a new civilization. And so that's why when he founded his spiritual movement, the very first discourse that he gave was on the gradual evolution of society in 1955, 1st of January, 1955. So he talked about the social cycle at that time. He just gave a hint. And then in 1959, he gave a series of courses in which he elaborated those concepts. Then in 1961, he gave his seminal discourse called Ananda Sutram, where he devoted 16 Sanskrit aphorisms on the social philosophy, in which he talked about the social cycle also. And then in 1967, he devoted a whole book on the social cycle. So I think he gave these ideas over a period of time so that people would be able to assimilate them and become the examples of, of what he wanted to create. So I think his objective was to create Sadvipras, these revolutionaries. And that takes time. That doesn't happen overnight. And so his love for the plants, for animals, for humans, irrespective of caste, creed, color, race, religion, his thinking was so broad, cosmopolitan, and he touched all domains of knowledge from arts, music, farm to agriculture, and languages, uh, history, even uh, writing stories for children. So he showed us that this social change is not only political change or not only economic change or not only social. It has to be a total transformation of all aspects of life. And that we saw in his personality. And as I came close to him, I realized that he knew past, present, future. And yet, when he was with you, he was just there, very normal way. He would interact with you just like he was a normal human being. When he gave me the duty to build up a university based on his ideas, it was called Gurukul. And so I went into his room. That was just the last 40 days of his life. And he asked me, do you understand the scope of responsibility I've given you? I said, yes, Baba. Will you be able to do it? I said, by your grace, I will surely be able to do it. And then he smiled and he whispered in my ears, I have done most of your work. Because all his life, he had been building up to leave behind a legacy, both in theory and practice, which has to be shared to the next generation. So I think his work is intergenerational work. 
And I think that's very inspiring that he did not think that quick fix. He did not want any quick fix, but he wanted something which would be built by one generation after another. And there was a very clear goal. And that is he wanted to create an exploitation-free society, a society in which there is, as I mentioned, there is freedom, there is happiness, there is prosperity, there is progress, there is justice. And that's very inspiring to live with a person who lived all his life for those ideals. I guess one way for the accountant to understand that this is, it'd be the quintuple bottom line. So there's prosperity. And we know if you have a prosperous life, organization, things are easier. Prosperous planet. Two is planet, meaning this is about Gaia, about all living beings, how to protect them. Third is about purpose. We know if there's an issue, always go back to purpose. Personal purpose during COVID-19, what's my purpose? Organizational purpose, national purpose, what's our purpose as a planet? So there's planet, prosperity, purpose. And if you're going to do this, you have to have partnerships. It won't work just alone. Whether it's a partnership of ourselves, partnership with others, partnership with, as Dada said, this is intergenerational, partnership with the future. It's a very much a long-term orientation. I'll just draw it back to, in my experience of watching this game play out when people play it. Yeah. Two things. There's, it makes clear the need to work together. But it also, back to Dada's point, is people try to do it from their own individual episteme and ideology, and they fail spectacularly in the room. Trying to do their best, they often do their worst. In trying to be just, they actually act unjust. And that experience, I think for many people, is quite, it's quite a searing experience because they believe they are good. They believe they are just. They believe they are interested in creating a better future. And yet they acted out something that was the antithesis of that. We've had, having run this as you have, I think I've run it at least 100 times. I know when I run it with senior law enforcement leaders in this world, and many of them, when they fail, they said, please don't tell the commissioner. There's no way I'll get promoted. Mm. They said, I thought I would act this way, but I didn't. I know when we were running this with family daycare services a long time ago, as the game started, the workers came out, started to take care of kids, did this family daycare system. Then the warriors came out and they immediately shot the workers for reasons which we didn't understand. Now, the intellectuals came in the game, and what they did, they looked at the workers on the ground, and they went back to their computers and opened up Excel spreadsheet, and they just counted how many people died. Then the capitalists came in, quickly bought the guns, and shot the warriors. Now, the CEO of the organization, this peak body, she said, okay, here's what just happened. She said, intellectuals don't feel that their policy work has any national impact. So they're not even going to make a, try to use ideas to make a difference. They're just going to count. The capitalists are the new for-profit enterprises coming in the system. They took over the old rules-based, and the rules-based came in because they felt individuals running family daycare centers weren't following the rules, so the warriors just eliminated them. We have to have a rules-based system. 
and now the big players came in and wiped everyone out. And so that's exactly what happened in the last 10 years. So that moment actually was the indicator of the emerging world. Now, when we ran this with one large mental health organization, one of the warriors pretty much shot everyone in the room. And later when the chair of the board said, let's talk about this, and she said, you folks are about to move towards this new vision. And there's a new vision of a better future, a more inclusive planet. And that's the fifth P, is people, inclusive people. You're about to do this, but I can see you're going back. You're not ready to make the step forward. You don't have the long-term orientation. You don't have the courage. You don't have the vision. So it's better I shoot everyone so at least I'm doing what's right. And so I said, what's your metaphor? She said, well, I'm the angel of mercy. I'm the angel of light. Everyone in the room has to figure out either we make the jump to a world better future or we don't. So today we're in the same situation. The climate change is saying we need to make a jump toward global governance and green renewables. Uh, discrimination in females, the feminism wouldn't say, no, gender equity is the solution. The challenge is that the UN can't stop Russia against Ukraine because of the Security Council system. So we have systems and structures that worked 100 years ago, perhaps, or 50 years ago, but they clearly don't work now. So if we ran a global soccer game, we would see we're on the verge of the evolutionary transformation. We have to make the jump, can we? So again, this is why Sarkar intellectually is so unique. There's a spiritual dimension, a futures dimension, macro history saying you need to create these new leadership group who actually help create the future. And then there's a visionary part. As he said to Dada, he imagined this new world system, a better world government, our identity new humanist, more focused spiritually, more focused on spirituality. And instead of the corporate system, the data again predicted earlier, a cooperative system. So if you look at Twitter, the battle in Twitter, it's actually a global public good. It should be run mm. as a co-op because everyone's using it for global public health, global ideas. So we're in a situation where the capitalists aren't, in this case, being part of the solution. They're being part of the problem. If we look at Russia, again, you went from a warrior system, the Bolsheviks, they came in, intellectual ideas around, around communism. The capitalists came in, and quickly now we have a situation where he's gone back to empire. So Putin as a warrior taking Ukraine for its economic resources. So both are mixing together, not for the greater good, but for the greater bad. So the Sarkar game shows us quickly, how do I use capital for the greater good? How do I use ideas for the greater good? How do I use warrior power, systemic rules for the greater good? And how do we as workers work for the greater good? So this was the challenge Sarkar saw in the 50s and actually laid down, here's how you can do this and it can work. It's a long, passionate response to your question. He felt that the potentialities of the society are not being fully tapped due to a defective social order. So he wanted to correct that. First, he wanted to explain what are the dynamics of the social order. And then he gave, okay, what inequities that existing, unless they are rectified, you won't be able to, you can do, try to do much good, but it doesn't work because the very systems are inequitable. So I think his goal was to really make us conscious, make us aware of where the structural changes would be needed and where the individual who run that structure also need to change because you can have any structure but if you are not run by good people then again you revert back to the old systems mm. of exploitation so i think he saw the importance of both the individual and the collective structures both 
individual has to be transformed, has to be elevated. That's why he gave attention on individual development, on meditation, on yoga, on moral principles, on value system, new humanism, all these things only for the individual growth. But then at the same time, he also talked about social service. But as Sohail was mentioning earlier, that social service alone cannot do good unless you know, the very systems are exploitative. So you have to change the system. And his proud, the progressive utilization theory, it challenges the very capitalist system because his very principles say no individual should be allowed to accumulate any physical wealth without the clear permission or approval of the collective body. You are hitting at the very root of capitalism, which is laissez-faire economy. One person can have billions and the other person can starve on the street. He says this is immoral. So I think we have to go back to his, his worldview of how to create a world government, how to create an equitable economy, how to increase the purchasing power of the people, and how to help individuals to become spiritually motivated. So I think it's a very roadmap for spiritual revolution. <laughs> Just in terms of resource, Dada has a new book out. Maybe you can say something about that, Dada. Uh, you mean the one which was towards a brighter future? Yeah. In this book, I have talked about his life and as I saw him and my personal experiences with him and his contributions to the world and his future vision. Anybody who is interested, of course, we can arrange to get it to them. Yeah, so. yeah we'll certainly have that in the links. I'm going to close on this one. It's mm. as if Sarkar, if Baba was here today, what would he suggest? What would he point us to do? From my perspective, I think he will say, unite all the moral and righteous people, bring them together and nurture the young, to follow the moral and this path of service and new humanistic path and launch movements for protection of the nature of plants and animals and rare species of plants which are becoming extinct, create habitats for, he created about 88 sanctuaries at Anandanagar just to show that every city should have enough space for the animals, for birds, for their habitat should not be taken over and just we start building human buildings everywhere. So I think it's just to bring back the society to the to a balance, to a prama-oriented society. I think he gave the plans and programs that he gave 50 years ago, if they are implemented today, I think still will be ahead of the game. There was a piece I wrote recently, and it was like, here's four ways to see the future of the world system. The first metaphor is invisible hand, right? Laissez-faire. And then you have in East Asia, it went to visible hand, let's have market with the state to get, have more inclusion. And then you have the stakeholder capitalism, people saying for capitalism to succeed, it's more inclusion. But there's a third framework, which is called shared hands. And that was Sarkar's proud, meaning essentially it's cooperative lead the way, more efficient, more economical, more green, more inclusive. But the fourth way afterwards, I call that magical hands. And magical hands is really the mix of microvita, uh, spiritual memes, consciousness transformation with AI and new technologies. So that's the way to think about the next 50, 100 years. At the personal level, I think exactly what Donna said, do the inner work. I need to make sure I'm doing my meditation or whatever spiritual path I'm on. And two, stay focused on the vision of the future and not get involved in the narcissism of differences. Because there's so many differences with 8 billion people there. Stay focused. Here's an alternative future 
in terms of where we can see the planet going, stay focused on that, and then do the social service to move towards there, whatever needs to be done. So I think he would go in these times where there's disagreement, times where there's difficulty, stay with the vision. Stay with where we wish to go and do the inner work to get there. Great. Look, thank you. Thank you, Sahail, for introducing me to Baba over 20 years ago, 7th of August, 2001. It's in the fly cover of the book I bought off you and you signed for me. So thank you for that. Thank you, Dada, for continuing and building the next part of Baba's vision through And thanks to each of you for coming back to FuturePod. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. I hope this will be of use. Thanks to Sahail and Dada for telling us much, much more about the man, the consciousness behind the Sarkar game and a whole lot more. There'll be more information on both Sarkar and the game in the show notes. I hope people who use the Sarkar game, there's something in here which is going to deepen your practice of it. And for people who haven't had a chance to use the Sarkar game but wouldn't mind giving it a try, I hope it's encouraged you to do that. But thanks to my participants and thanks for listening. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you want to support the pod, then please go to the Patreon link on our website. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.